0: Everybody feeling inspired yet? <laughs> All right, it's going to be fun today. Um, i glad you're in church. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here, and I'm glad you're here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that. Let me just say before I jump into the message, uh, just a thank you to everyone who was able to make it out this past Tuesday night. If you haven't heard yet, we have started uh, a midweek service. That's our prayer meeting. We meet on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. So about eight o'clock for some worship and prayer. We do it for a lot of reasons, you know. We want it to be a, a pick me up for your faith during the middle of the week. But the main reason we do it is because we are committed together to figure out how to be a praying church. We want to be a praying church. We believe in the power of prayer and the dreams that God has put in our heart. The, the things we feel like we're supposed to do as a church we will never be able to do in our own strength and in our own power. And so we're we want to be a praying church. So we're kind of figuring that out together, and we're doing that every week on Tuesday nights. So about eighty of you came. And I just want to say thank you uh, for being here, and uh, hopefully you'll figure out a way. We can all figure out a way to make Tuesday nights be a prayer, be a part of our our weekly schedule, all right? So we're taking the fall to, to study the story of the first Christians. And we find these stories in the book of Acts. It's called Acts because it's literally the actions of the first apostles and the Christians. And we're calling the series Wildfire because as you read the stories of these first Christians... You can't help but notice how these non-influential, uneducated people are spreading the message of Jesus and spreading the message of church in an unprecedented way. And then even beyond the book of Acts, history tells us that these, these people, this small group of believers, eventually, you know, 300 or so years later, would, would actually overtake and overcome the, the Roman Empire, and I've shared these, these numbers with you uh, some of the weeks. I want to share them to you again. But history tells us that there, are about a, uh, there were about 1,000 Christians. So it started with 120. There's about 1,000 Christians by 40 A.D. And then 7,000 by 100 A.D. And 200,000 by 200 A.D. And then over 5 million Christians by 300 A.D. And then today it's estimated there are 2.5 billion Christians. That number's growing um, by about 45 million every year. And so what we're trying to figure out is what caused the message of Jesus and the church to grow and to spread like this. They didn't have power. They weren't government officials. There was no social media to make things go viral or anything like that. It was just these believers, these Christians, and this, this church that started so small. What did they have that we don't have? What did they do that we don't do? I'm trying to figure that out, and up to this point in this series, we have read these stories that have all kind of made sense. You know, we've we've read about powerful miracles and and prayer services, and people have been healed, and and so it's kind of easy to connect the dots and figure out how people would be interested in this. It's kind of you can connect the dots and see how it would be growing because you know if you're healed or you know, see these miraculous things happening, maybe you're interested in that, and and so the church would grow in number and in influence. But today, we get to a story that on the surface seems completely different than all the other stories that we've read, right? Because in today's story, no one's healed, they're killed, right? And they're not just killed, but they're struck dead in the middle of a church service, and um, as I was knowing that this this story was coming and that this sermon was coming, I, I couldn't help but think about a story about my great grandfather that I want to tell you today. As I knew the sermon and this story of Anne and I since if I were coming, I reached out to my dad and my brother and my aunt. And because as a kid, there was always this story about my great grandfather that that we talked about. But, you know, you can't always trust your memory from childhood. So I'll reach back out to kind of make sure that the story that I'm about to tell you was a true story. And it, and it is. They, they verified it. Even my grandmother, before she passed away, verified it for my brother. And um, the story goes like this. My great-grandfather, I have a picture of him they'll show you, but my great-grandfather, his name was Ernest, and uh, he was a, a minister. He was an evangelist. And you've heard me say before that um, That uh, I'm a fourth generation preacher. So it all kind of started with with Ernest. And he would go into these towns. They would kind of do this more often back back then, but he would go into these towns and set up a tent to do a tent revival. And then, you know, after a certain period of time, after, you know, depending on the interest of, of the meeting and depending on, you know, what happened in that meeting, they would establish a new church in the town. And then they would find a pastor for the church, and then the evangelist would move on to another city and and do another tent revival. So this is what my great-grandfather did. And and he went into this one particular city at one point, and he set up a tent for his uh, revival meeting. And he just happened to set it up across the street from a certain business. And the business owner was not a believer, and he was not excited that there was a tent being set up for a revival service. And so he called the sheriff and um, the sheriff showed up uh, out there and went to my great grandfather and said, you know, in essence, he just said, hey, um, we don't need another revival in this town. We don't need another church. We don't need another preacher. I want you to pack up your stuff and I want you to, to move on. And my great grandfather, you know, said back to him, hey, you know, I don't know why you're so upset. We're we're here because we feel like this is where God has sent us, and this is what God's called us to do. And so, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have our meetings. And so the the sheriff got angry, and he and he he's just said to him, he said, "You've got to go. You're trespassing. I'm not gonna let you be here. I want you I want you to leave." And um, my great grandfather, you know, said back to him, like, "Listen, we're we're not leaving. Um, you know." We, we feel like this is where we're supposed to be, and so we're, we're not leaving. And so the, the sheriff, you know, had had enough, and he said to my great-grandfather, he said, if I come back here tomorrow and you're still here, I'm going to arrest you. We are not having a tent revival, another church, or another, another preacher. And so my, my great-grandfather said to him, he said, you know, you do whatever you feel like you need to do but we will have a revival here. And the sheriff said back to him, he said, over my dead body. And my great-grandfather said, that could be arranged. (laughs) Now, depending on what the family business is, that could mean a lot of different things. Our particular family business is the Lord, you know? And so that's what he said. And the story goes, and I called to make sure that this happened, A couple of different times, but the story goes that that night, the sheriff passed away in his sleep. And when you hear stories like that, I mean, I immediately thought of it knowing we were preaching this, this particular story. But when you hear a story like that, or you read a story like we read today, you would probably assume that these are the kinds of stories that would cause people not to be attracted to the church, but to actually run from the church in fear. That there would be such trepidation and such skepticism. Maybe some of you hear that story and say, whatever, that's not true. Or or maybe you feel it's unfair or there's something about it that turns you off beyond fear. You would hear that and say, that would cause people to run from the church. But actually, and we didn't have time to read it today. If you go down just a few verses past what we um, read today, it says that, In Acts 5, 12 through 14, it says the believers were were still meeting together. In verse 13, it said, But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Verse 14, it says, Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord. So it's actually not what our instincts would tell us, that this would turn people off or get people to run away. We have a story of the first Christians meeting together, a couple lying about their offering, being struck dead, carried out by the first youth group in the Bible, and people still were coming. They were still being brought to the Lord. This movement was still growing. How is that possible? That is the worst church growth strategy known to man. And last night, Andrea said to me, she said... um, She said, Jason, you know, tomorrow's going to be so great. We're going to have so many visitors there because of baptism. What are you preaching on? (laughs) And I was like, don't worry about it. Just go to sleep. Don't worry about it. (laughs) So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how something like this, a story like this, could cause the church to grow even more. And to do that, I want to answer two questions. So we'll kind of do it in two parts, but first, I want to answer the question, what happened? What happened? I mean, just as we read a story like this, I think we need to take some time and try to figure out what happened. But then the second question I want to answer, and probably more importantly to you, is what are the chances something like this could happen to me? What are the chances that this could happen to me? So let's try and answer those questions. The first question is, what happened? What happened on this day? Well, this story Records the first sin in the book of Acts. Now, obviously, this was not the first sin. Obviously, people had been sinning. We've read these stories and haven't seen any of that or read any of that, but that doesn't mean that people hadn't been sinning. We know that people sin, we know that Christians sin. So, of course, before this story, there had been Christians and people who had been sinning, but but Luke felt it was important to record this particular sin, and so we have the first recorded sin in Acts and the first public sin in the church, the first time we see people uh, scheming and, and sinning. And so I think it would be good, as we kind of start here, I think it would be good to take a moment and to just consider why Ananias and Sapphira would do something like we can't know for sure, but I think we could assume at least that the reason that they would do something like this would be the same reason that we would do something like this. They experience the same emotions, you know, that we do. So as we consider some of the reasons, maybe they wanted affirmation for being generous. You know, we we read today that there was a guy named Joseph who would eventually be known as Barnabas, and he sold land and and everybody was excited about that. And so maybe Ananias and Sapphira saw, you know, the reception and the applause that Barnabas and Joseph got, and, and they wanted that. Or, or maybe they felt like outsiders, and they wanted to feel like insiders. So they thought, you know, if I do something extravagant, if I, if I do something really outstanding, then, then maybe people will make us feel welcome and feel like insiders. Maybe. They had every intention of trying to give all the money. You know, they, they were, they, they, they were going to do it. But then, you know, the mortgage company direct deposited the money into their bank account and they logged in and they saw it and they saw all that money and they thought, well, we ain't got to give all of it. I mean, you know. And so they just, they got scared and, and, and didn't, or greedy and didn't want to do it. We know the power of our past, so so maybe they grew up incredibly poor, Ananias and Sapphira. We don't know. Maybe they grew up incredibly poor, and maybe there were like generational things at play, and and the fear of giving up their savings account was just too much to overcome emotionally for them, and they couldn't do it. Maybe they. Maybe they had started cutting corners in life, you know, a few years ago, and this was the kind of stuff that started to feel normal for them, and it just kind of escalated to where they would do something like this because they had, you know, started doing these kinds of things in smaller ways earlier. I mean, there, there are all kinds of reasons why Anna and I, fire, would do something like this, and there are all kinds of reasons why you and I would do something like this. We can't know, but, you know, I don't... I don't think that they were con artists. I don't think that they were intentionally trying to be thieves. I think they were believers. I think they were coming to church, trying to belong to the church. I think they were filled with good intentions. I think they wanted to do something nice and something generous. But somewhere in the process of having good intentions and wanting to do something nice and wanting to do something generous, somewhere in that process, Instead of following through with that, instead what they did is they presented something about themselves that wasn't true. And they gave into the pressure of wanting to appear more spiritual than they actually were. And so we would say that this first sin that we read about in the church would be the sin of hypocrisy. It would be the sin of Hypocrisy. And everyone in the room knows what that feels like. There's not anybody listening to me right now who does not know what it feels like to give in to the pressure of presenting to the public a version of yourself that is not accurate. That is a, a better version than who you actually are. Everyone knows what it feels like to give in to that and to do something like that. Including me, by the way. Last year, I was talking to my counselor in one of our appointments, and, and I, I was just sharing some of the stuff that was going on with me. And I, and I said to him, I said, you know, I just so desperately want to be more like the person that I project that I am. I so desperately want to be, you know, this authentic, genuine person. I don't want there to be a gap between who I, you know, act like I am, project that I am and and who I really am. And so I just, I wish I could just be more like who I, you know, kind of project that I am. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's interesting that you put it that way because if you want to be more genuine, why don't you just publicly be who you actually are? And I was like, offended. And I was like, well, obviously I can't do that. No, what I want to do is I want to be privately more of who I act like I am publicly. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But why don't you just be publicly who you actually are privately? And I was like, session over. We're not doing that. Because there's this fear that like, well, I could never do that. I could never be that. The pastor, Hayden Robinson, he's deceased now, but he used to begin every sermon with this confession. God, if these people knew about me what you know about me, they wouldn't listen to a word I said. It's a very real feeling for a pastor or a minister, but it's not just for pastors or ministers. I'm not alone in this. All of us care deeply what people think. All of us want to be respected or well thought of or envied. And we know the truth about us, and we're convinced that if people knew the truth that we know about us, that no one would love us. No one would accept us. We'd never be welcomed here. But that's not true. And it's especially not true for Christians. One of the reasons we belong to a church family, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that God gives us a place to come together as brothers and sisters, believers together, one of the reasons is because this is an opportunity for us to practice the spiritual discipline of confession. Confession. Now, many of you grew up Catholic, and so when I say practicing confession, you have a certain image that comes to your mind of sitting with the priest or being in a booth or however that happened for you, and that's certainly one way to do it, but it's not the only way to do it. And that confession is actually something that's supposed to be practiced together among all of us. And so God gives us the church, and this is actually supposed to be a safe place, the safest place, for you to be honest about your struggles, what's happening in your life. This place, the church, the family of God. But unfortunately for for many people, it's the exact opposite. This is actually the place where you're the most secretive. This is actually the place where you have the most pretense. This is actually the place where you are the most hypocritical. When it should be the place where you feel the safest, to be honest about where you are and who you are. And in this story, it's almost as if God wanted to send this supernatural message to them and to you and to me. It's almost as if he was trying to say, with his power, he was trying to send a powerful message that he wants his church to be free from secrets and lies. I spent a lot of uh, time these last few weeks reading and studying and researching about this story, wanting to find a great explanation for why God did this to them at this time. And so I, you know, I, we, I dug as much as I could, and I couldn't find a good answer. I mean, really smart people you know that normally have answers. I couldn't find a great answer for why God would do this act of judgment specifically to them at this time in this way. But there was one guy who had a theory, and he. I'm prefacing this by saying it was a theory. He, he said, and I love this. He said it was almost like that that God was sending a message, or or, or preserving the innocence and the unity and the goodwill of the church. Because up until this point, we read about how they're of one mind and they're sharing and there's nobody in need and they're praying together. They're so unified. And it was almost as if he said, it was almost as if God was like, look, I know for the next couple thousand years, the church is going to have some black eyes and we're not going to do it right and we're going to mess some things up. But but I just, for, for one more chapter, just for one more week, I, I just want to keep the innocence and the purity and I'm not going to let secrecy and hypocrisy and greed come into the church just yet. I thought that was interesting. But notice nowhere in any of this am I saying that the church should be free of sinners. Because if the church was free of sinners, nobody would be here, including me. So what I'm not talking about today is uh, perfection. The point of this story, when you read this, should not be that you're never allowed to show up to church hurting. You're never allowed to show up up to church messed up or sinning or struggling. That's not the point of the story. God does not expect perfection, but he does want you to be honest. He wants you to be honest. Honesty. Do you know how many secrets there are in the room, this, this room specifically today? Do you know how many secrets there are in here? It's probably better that we don't think about it as often as we could think about it. But even on your row, do you know how many secrets there are on your row? I mean, in this room right now, we've got secret addicts, we've got secret extramarital affairs, secret suicidal thoughts, we've got uh, people who are secretly planning for divorce, people who have secret credit cards, secret gambling debts, secret apps on your phone. Tolstoy, the the famous Russian novelist, he said, if the sexual fantasies of the average person were exposed to view, the world would be horrified. I think we could all agree with that. Which leads us to the second question today. If God was sending some kind of message about secrets and, and hypocrisy, and I know me, I got secrets, I'm a hypocrite, so, so if, if, if that's what happened to them, Jason, what are the chances that something like this would happen to me? I mean, if, if God's in the business of striking people dead who have secrets, I'm in trouble. So what are the chances that something like this would happen to me? What, am I gonna turn out like they turned out? And like I said, I actually did spend a large amount of time trying to find a good explanation for why this happened to them specifically like it did at this time. And again, nobody really had a great explanation. But for some reason beyond our ability to know why, God wanted to judge Ananias and Sapphira at that moment. And we don't have any other story like this in the entire New Testament. Nowhere else in the New Testament. You've got lots of examples of something like this in the Old Testament, but nowhere else in the New Testament do we find any story like this in the rest of the Bible. And probably most of, I don't think any of us in the room probably, maybe, would have an example personally of a story like this. So we don't see any more in the New Testament. We don't personally have stories like this. And thank God for that, by the way. I mean, that's a good point to just breathe for a second. Thank God that we don't have other examples like this. This this is a great moment. This story is a great time to take a moment and thank God for grace. I mean, thank God for all the times that our sins didn't find us out. Thank God for all the times that our secrets weren't made public. Thank God for all the times that our sins didn't kill us. Anybody in the room could just thank God for that. We're not here because, you know... We never had an opportunity to not be here. We're here by the grace of God. And so this story gives us an opportunity to, to contemplate and, and to be grateful for grace. 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 I think, I think a lot of Christians misunderstand grace. Grace. And, and I, it's easy to do because I think if I said to you, if you had a situation in your life and I said, hey, just give that person grace. What we usually mean by give grace is we mean let it go, give the benefit of the doubt, you know, just give them grace. And so it's easy to think that when we talk about God giving us grace, that we mean it in that way, that we, we mean it like um, God just kind of lets it go. You know, God God gives you the benefit of the doubt and, and don't worry about it. But that's not what we mean when we say that God gives grace. Grace is is not just God being nice. Grace is me not getting what I deserve. And it's not because God decides to let it go. I get grace for my sin and you get grace for your sin because Jesus has already paid the punishment for those sins. Does that make sense to everybody? So God's not being nice and just letting it go because you did more bad things or more good things this week than bad things. God is being just. Your sins have already been paid for by Jesus's life so you don't have to pay for them with your life. You aren't struck dead when you sin because Jesus was already killed for your sins. And so when you receive grace, it's because the penalty, the death for that sin has already occurred. This is what it means to have faith. Did you know that? Faith doesn't mean that you just believe in God. Demons believe in God. Faith means that you believe that God loves you perfectly and holds nothing against you because of the death of Jesus Christ. Now, we ain't got time to get into this as much as I'd love to get into it, but Romans chapter three says this maybe better than any other place in the Bible. Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 25. I just wanna read it to you. It says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, all the Old Testament laws. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Ananias and Sapphira didn't do something we haven't done. Yet God in his, what's that word? Grace. God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood. Now, here's why that matters. Because in this story, we get a glimpse of what life would be like without grace. We get just a glimpse of what life would be like without grace. Sin deserves death. Every sin is an offense to a holy God. And if we got what we deserved, every little white lie should kill us. Every gossiping word should kill us. Every lustful thought should kill us. Every sin sentences us to death. But it is only because the grace of God that we do not have to live in fear of being struck dead by God or hit by lightning or, or, you know, him breaking our car down or giving us cancer or, or doing something to get back at us. We don't have to live in fear of that. Because of the grace of God, because of the life and the death of Jesus Christ. So please hear this. If you're here today, even if you claim to be a Christian and you still live with this paralyzing fear that God wants to get back at you or do something to you, please hear me. It may be because that you have not fully trusted in Jesus Christ. It may be that you still buy into this idea that's so easy to buy into that to be a Christian means that you come, you apologize for what you've done, and then you try your best to be good, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity means that you believe that you don't have to die for your sins because Jesus died for your sins, that you're made right with God because of what Jesus did, not what you do, and so your faith is in what he did, not what you do. This literally means that without faith in Jesus, what we deserve is the penalty for every sin we commit. But we are not killed for those sins because Jesus was killed for those sins. Does that make sense? This is what it means when we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We don't mean we caught God on a nice day. We mean that our faith is in the fact that even though we still sin, Jesus Christ has already paid the penalty for those sins. But that doesn't mean that your lies won't kill you. Now, I, I'm pretty certain that your lies won't kill you in a split second, and I'm fairly certain that it won't happen in the middle of a church service. But make no mistake, if you become the kind of person who gets good at lying to your community, if you become the kind of person who gets really good and comfortable lying to the people that God has placed around you, it will lead to death. Sin leads to death. Sometimes emotional death, spiritual death, sometimes physical death. So we read this story with two lenses on. One lens says, thank God for grace because I don't have to live in fear of a lightning strike. But that does not mean that if I'm here today and I am the kind of person who is good at living a fake life and no one knows what's really happening in my heart and in my life, that I am not headed for death because we are. So this opportunity gives us all a chance to look within, to confront ourselves. Where have you grown comfortable lying to yourself and to others? Where are you cutting corners? Where are you keeping secrets? Where are you acting more spiritual than you really are? How comfortable have you got lying to yourself or to God or to your community? I was reminded this week, I was was talking just about this message and and just, you know, discussing it with our our team. I was reminded this week by our, our executive pastor, Katie, about this verse in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance. We know exactly when it was written. It was written by David after he was busted, outed for his extramarital affair with Bathsheba. And he writes this psalm of repentance to God after being caught in his sin. It's a beautiful psalm of repentance, but down towards the very end, in verse 16 and 17, David says this to God. He says, You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. This doesn't mean that God doesn't ever want our sacrifice. Of course he does following Jesus will require sacrificial acts of obedience. But what it's saying is that God wants our sacrifice, our obedience, he wants it with the right heart and with the right intentions. What it means is that God doesn't want your big, noble, attention-grabbing sacrifices and spiritual acts. He wants a repentant heart. But this is so much harder to do than it should be because aren't we all pre-programmed to think, hey, I haven't been doing great for God. I'll make it up by doing something big for him. You know, here's a piece of jewelry, God, like we're good. Hey, here's a big offering. Here, I'll serve in the kids, you know, like a punishment, like oh, I'll serve the kids. <laughs> I'll come to prayer meeting. I know I've been struggling, so God, here. I'll, I'll do something really sacrificial, God. God's like, I want that. I want a I repentant heart, a broken, a contrite spirit. God does not expect perfection, but he does desire honesty. Hear me. God does not expect perfection, and thank God he doesn't, but he does desire honesty. And I believe... That the reason that the church kept growing was because there was there, there's something inside of all of us that wants to belong to a place with this kind of purity, this kind of innocence, this kind of passion, this kind of unity. I believe all of us, desperately want to belong to something that feels like life or death. We're not looking for another commitment or calendar obligation. No, we want to belong to a place and to a God that sees through us, that really knows us. And each and every week we Come to the Lord's table for communion. We're going to do that in just a moment. And when we do, it is an opportunity to be reminded that we are not saved or in good standing with God because we had a good week. It's a reminder that it's because of the broken body of Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed by him that we can know God, that we are loved by God, that we are right with God. So what it should do is it should release some of the fear that we have, to be honest about where we are and who we are. Because there's nothing that you could admit or confess that changes the way God feels about you. Now, I'm not saying everybody in here is well-trained in how to handle whatever you're about to drop on them. You know? I tell Andrew whenever she's going to get a haircut, if it's going to be drastic, I need a heads up. I want to practice my face. You know, I just need to, (laughs) like... I love it. I love you. I just need to practice my face. I don't have a great initial face, all right? (laughs) And so, like, I'm not saying that everybody's going to handle everything you ever confess perfectly. But confession is also just much more than, like, the worst things you've ever done in the last six years. It's also what you're feeling and what you're thinking and what you want to do but you haven't done yet. And all of those things, like, this is supposed to be the place that we all actually believe that it's not our actions that make us saved, but it's Jesus that makes us saved. And so we say, hey, I'm scared to death to do it, but I'm going to stop living with secrets and living with lies. And if we become a place like that, we won't have room for all the people that will drive any distance and come at any time because they desperately long to be a part of a place like that. No more lies, no more secrets, no more pretense. And so we're going to do just that. We're going to take communion today. I'm going to pray for us, and you're going to have the opportunity to come forward. And when you do today, and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, we don't just go through some act because we're checking it off a list. We take a few seconds or a few moments, and we are reminded that it is because of Jesus, that Jesus was, in essence, struck dead for you and for me. And it's not about how good we were or how bad we were or how hard we tried. It's about how much we trust that that is true about what Jesus Christ did for us. Our prayer team is going to be down front during this song and during communion. If there's anything you'd like to pray for, they'd love to pray with you. All right, let's pray.